When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In 2017, Lighter Reports, the most popular blog for academic philosophers, held a poll to determine the most influential philosophers in history. The top two positions weren't that surprising. The dynamic duo of Aristotle and Plato. But voted the third most important philosopher of all time was a more recent, less well-known figure, the 18th century thinker Immanuel Kant. Kant was born in 1724 in Königsberg, a distant outpost of Prussia. By all accounts, he was a very popular fellow. When Kant died, um, there were 20,000 people at his funeral. And only 50,000 people lived in Königsberg. So he was an immense intellectual celebrity. Um, this was partly because this was a world in which there really was an, a learned public largely male, but not exclusively male, who are interested in questions of science, religion, and philosophy. In some ways, Königsberg was an isolated place. Although it was a part of Prussia, a German kingdom, it wasn't physically connected to the rest of Prussia. But it did connect two worlds. Königsberg was an important seaport on the Baltic Sea, and much trade between Western Europe and the Russian Empire moved through the city. As far as anyone knows, Kant never traveled more than 100 miles from his home. And he studied at the university there and uh, became a very hardworking and extraordinarily hardworking. I mean, you know, it's traditional for um, academics to complain about their workload. <laughs> but <laughs> if you knew what a workload Kant had, uh, you, you know, you, we, we would complain a lot less. So he worked immensely hard um, and... Uh, he was in his 50s when the Critique of Pure Reason was published. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode of the show, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For today's episode, I sat down with Professor Michael Rosen to discuss Kant's Critique of Pure Reason. There is a myth surrounding Kant's philosophical awakening. As a university student, he studied under Martin Knudsen, a rationalist philosopher. Rationalism holds that reason is the main source of knowledge. According to rationalism, there are ways to learn concepts through reason alone, without direct experience. The rationalists relied on a priori knowledge, knowledge that's based solely on deductions. For example, 3 plus 2 equals 5. You can solve that math problem just by thinking about it. That was the philosophical tradition Kant learned in school. The idea is that Kant was this kind of um, isolated figure um, who was doing philosophy in a very um, traditional, rationalist way. And then he read Hume and like... Um, like the princess in the in 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 the story, she's who's awakened by the kiss of Prince Charming. Uh, she, you know, Kant was was awakened from what he called his dogmatic slumbers. Um, that's 
a part of a myth, but it's not entirely false. Yeah, what had Hume said that woke him up? And what was he trying to counter? Well, rationalist metaphysics was an attempt to try and give an account of the nature of reality from reason alone. And in a very sort of crude way, what Hume does is take a hammer to this and say, look, um, just by pure thought, we just can't get at anything substantive about the nature of reality. So Hume was writing against the rationalists. He was saying, you can't just sit on your armchair and think about time, space, existence, human nature, chair, and understand it fully. Um, Did he say, no, the only way is to go and run experiments and touch things? Well, Hume is actually, as we read him now, a very modern kind of thinker. He says, look, the whole project of philosophy of trying to find um, a priori truths about the nature of the mind has to be abandoned. The only truths that we can get at are those which are, as it were, justified through, let's call it an empirical study of the human mind. So one way of understanding Kant in the Critique of Pure Reason is what he takes from Hume but also what his own objections to Hume are. What's really fundamental for Kant is to say, not like Hume, everything that we know is just comes from experience, but that experience is necessary and concepts are necessary. That thoughts without content are empty, intuitions without concepts are blind. This dualistic um, idea is a very fundamental one for Kant. And I think it's the dualism that, uh, that, that has been one of the enduring features of um, Kant's legacy. Hume thought rationalism didn't work at all. Kant, on the other hand, thought rationalism didn't work by itself. In Critique of Pure Reason, he attempts to join the beliefs of the rationalists that you can reach truth by reason alone, and of Hume, that the only way to reach truth is through experience. Critique of Pure Reason was the first book in a three-part critical project. It was followed by the Critique of Practical Reason in 1788 and the Critique of Judgment in 1790. So he is a comprehensive philosopher. He wants a, a, a system which um, will include um, not just issues about the relationship between the mind and the world and the validity of geometry and physics, but also moral, political, and religious questions all together. So that's one thing I think that's very important to bear in mind. Kant wasn't using the word critique in the same way English speakers use it today. This wasn't a takedown of reason. It was an investigation. So, you know, the the word criticism of pure reason wouldn't really convey what's very distinctive about the critical project. Because it isn't just, you know, weighing it up like a, an art criticism where you say, OK, so this is a first-rate work or this is a second-rate work. Nor is it just this sort of hostile criticism, you know. Um, you know it's, uh, the critique is supposed to 
synthesize or find its way between two great tendencies in philosophy and the human mind more generally, one of which he calls dogmatism, the other of which is skepticism. Kant used the term dogmatism to refer to the process of acquiring knowledge a priori, through reason. It's a rationalist philosophy. Skepticism refers to the Humean mistrust of a priori knowledge. A skeptical view says that knowledge can only be gathered through experience. And he thinks, roughly speaking, that the attempts of all these traditional metaphysics to try and give us the knowledge, uh, a priori knowledge, have failed. And that produces people like Hume, who are skeptics. And this, this flip-flopping back and forth is part is what he thinks history of philosophy is about. You've got to look for a third way, a third way which won't um, be subject to the um, objections of dogmatic metaphysics, but will in a certain way redeem its aspirations and so avoid skepticism. Now that is rather abstract, but there's something else again which I think is really, really important, which is um, he thinks too that this has significance on the religious plane. Because religion too can be dogmatic. You know, here it is, we've just got to accept this revelation and, you know, you either have grace or you don't. Um, that's all there is to it. For Kant, that's, you know, for many reasons, a very objectionable position. This wasn't just abstract thought for thought's sake. These were issues that mattered to the people of the time. If you want to say, well, you know, what got him out of bed in the morning, uh, it wasn't just the need to earn a living. It wasn't just a kind of rather abstract concern for these very abstract questions. I think he lived at a time where these were really burning questions. Kant was part of what we know today as the Enlightenment. This was an age of skepticism when philosophers, scientists, artists, and revolutionaries were questioning the old ways and reforming society. Advancements in science and technology were unlocking new discoveries, and mysteries were explained through empirical observation. Projects like the encyclopedia dispersed knowledge beyond the academy. Enlightenment thinkers aimed to build a society on reason and knowledge, rather than faith and dogma. Kant understood himself as an apostle of the Enlightenment. But he had a kind of different conception of Enlightenment than uh, the people were familiar with, the Voltaires, the Rousseaus, the Locks, and, uh, and, and, and the Humes and Adam Smiths from, you know, Scotland and, 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 and Paris. So that's one way in which you could kind of look at it. What was he, in what way was he in agreement with them and in what way was he um, against them? I suppose the biggest sort of agreement is the thought that in the end, reason has to be the standard for everything. So that you cannot expect people to believe or submit to anything that can't be given a rational justification. He believes very strongly that he can give a rational justification of religion. So unlike, say, Diderot or arguably Hume, um, he didn't have a view that Christianity was just a tissue of superstition. But he did have a view 
that anything that was worthy of um, faith and belief had to be conveyable in a way that uh, met human reason. Even as Kant refuted dogmatism, he held on to some religious beliefs, including the belief that humans are bound by a moral law. That uh, goes together with a sense that the world is the product of a benevolent creator, a benevolent creator whose benevolence doesn't show itself just by making the world um, as happy as possible, but by creating a world in which human beings have freedom. Kant also believed in an afterlife where good would be rewarded and evil would be punished. But his thought was that uh, a world in which there is a discrepancy between what people do and what befalls them is an unjust world. And justice would require uh, that wicked people should be punished. So this is all part of a much broader system, um, some of which has fallen into neglect because it's just a much less appeal to people nowadays. And so. so he's an apostle of the Enlightenment, and the Enlightenment was in many ways particularly dedicated to unshackling people's minds from authority. Absolutely. And um, giving them the tools of thought to be free in yes. the world. Yes, absolutely. And so how does, how does that project fit with the pull towards dogmatism and towards skepticism? Can we, can we find a relationship between the Enlightenment project and those two poles? The connection is that skepticism leads you away from authority, dogmatism imposes authority, critical philosophy leads you to justified authority, to legitimate authority. I think that would be a brief way of putting it. So is Kant interested in clarifying justified authority or giving us a set of tools for developing those authorities or knowing which authorities are justified in following? Um, how, how does he track that third way? I think that's pervasive in his thought. I think it's going on all the time. And it's interesting because um, he's actually more with a small c conservative than you might think when it comes to politics. And that's not just because he was living in an absolutist state. Um, so he thinks that um, there's no way in which human beings can live together without um, a political authority um, whose um, decisions are obeyed by citizens and that it's not up to citizens to pick or choose between uh, this or that law, whether to obey it or not. Nor is it open to citizens to rebel against um, constituted authority. So that's very conservative in one way. On the other hand, he also thinks that there are rational criteria which um, the authority ought to obey. People must obey political authority. But authority can't rule by dogma alone. Authority has to be justified through reason. A final piece on this uh, skepticism, dogmatism. One is, what, what is skepticism? And why did Kant think it wasn't the right way to live in the world? 
The scepticism that I think he had in mind was embodied in Hume saying, look, the project of philosophy, the, the, the project of philosophy to get a priori knowledge is just impossible. Therefore, the best that we can do is, as it were, give a naturalistic account of those things we can't help believing. So there's a sort of two-pronged picture. You look, as it were, on the level of justification, and you find that it fails. And you look at the level of naturalistic explanation, and you say, well, that's the way we're wired up. That's the way we're, we just happen to be that sort of creature. And uh, that gives you a sort of queasy sense of, okay, so all there is behind um, the causal order of nature is just the fact that we're so constituted that we can't help expecting it. As soon as that kind of thought comes into you philosophically, the scepticism becomes much harder to relax with. But it also shows itself in different places. In Critique of Pure Reason, Kant uses the metaphor of a pair of glasses. He says that we are all wearing green glasses, so everything that we look at is green. A skeptic might say, based on their experience, that the sky is green. The empirical evidence shows that it's green. But what the skeptic doesn't realize is that the green is actually coming from their glasses. Our experience of the world is colored by our bodies and minds. Everyone's glasses are a little different, but we can't take them off. You can't reason your glasses away. And how does his theory, I guess we could call it a theory, how does it um, provide this third way? How does it solve the dilemma as he saw it? Third way between dogmatism and scepticism. Well, in the end, it's a story about the power of reason, the power of human reason, which in a certain way is prior to and more fundamental than the actual pieces of reasoning that you and I go through when we think about things. So we are reasoners, but we're also embodiments of reason. And reason shows itself to us in our capacity, for instance, to think about mathematics, in our capacity, even more important, to think about ethics and morality. These are all products of our nature as beings who participate in reason. And I think that's the, that's the bit which makes him seem much more like a dogmatic metaphysician than uh, the traditional Enlightenment thinkers, because it's very ambitious. But it has the Enlightenment um, characteristic that nothing is going to have authority which can't be vindicated by reason. So it's those two things together that make him... Well, he thought he was entirely consistent. Uh, you know, people who've looked at him have thought, oh, well, you know, he's got enlightenment elements, anti-enlightenment elements. Uh, he thought that they came together seamlessly. Um, others may differ. Like other enlightenment thinkers, Kant believed in reason, that dogma isn't enough. But skepticism isn't enough either. Kant was a dualist. He believed that we know what we know through a combination of reasoning and experience. Through this philosophy of dualism, Kant bridged the gap between dogmatism and skepticism. It's interesting that Kant continues to resonate. People keep coming back to Kant. Karl Popper is a great example of 
what we might call a modern Kantian, someone who's uh, absorbed Kant's idea that uh, we don't get to know the world in a theory-independent way, but at the same time has um, a historical perspective through which we don't get to know it once and for all through a set of categories that are given once and for all. And that's a theme which I think it's there in philosophy departments, but I think it's there wider in our culture, that we're used to thinking about things historically and we're not comfortable with a, with, with a naively realist account of how we encounter the world. Are you suggesting that Kant helps us think about our beliefs or our knowledge as historically contingent and that it's never final, what we know? Well, I'm suggesting that that idea which you put is on the face of it a very un-Kantian idea, but it's one that people have tried to bring together with Kant. But I'd be reluctant also to let it go and say, um, you know, as a matter of fact, the most important contemporary legacy of Kant is in the sphere of moral and political philosophy. It's that Kant's emphasis on human agency and the consequence he draws for the way in which agency has to be given absolute value over and against any instrumental use of human beings, that inspires a very great deal of contemporary ethical thought. As a parlor game, what would the world look like without Kant? How would how, how, how do the things that we take for granted trace to his thought in his obscure little post? I think Kant uh, was someone who embodied, but in the, in the most refined, sophisticated, complicated way, many of the ideas that were going on at his time. So I tend to think that many of them would have also happened independently of Kant. They wouldn't have um, been as sophisticated. They wouldn't have been as refined. Uh, things would have looked rather different. We can't know that, but we can know that the extraordinary resonance he had for other people wasn't just the fact that he was saying something, as it were, he made some abstract discovery which no one had thought of, it was a way that he was articulating things that people at the time um, had come to think but hadn't managed to express um, in discursive form. And so that shows that I'm probably a little bit more of a historicist than, uh, than, than some other philosophers. So I don't think it's just, you know, I don't think Kant was just a great thinker. I think he was a great thinker who was in tune and in touch with things that were going on elsewhere. Can you place this book in historical importance for us? Where, where, how important is this book? Kant carried out a massive revolution, showed us quite how deep it's possible to go uh, by thinking about these things. He gives a, an extraordinary example of creativity, imagination, and attention to detail. Um, you know, I, I said earlier in your parlor game response that the world would have gone on much the same way. 
I do think that without the critique of pure reason, it would be immensely poorer. Why should we read difficult books like this? What's the payoff for reading a text like this? Well, philosophy isn't for everybody. Some people um, are happy to go through life um, you know, with a set of attitudes, a set of goals which they don't really question. Some of us are blessed or cursed with a reflective turn of mind. We are attracted to the idea of looking at things from a different perspective. We're attracted to the idea of challenging things that we'd taken for granted. We live in a world in which it's obvious that our fellow citizens inside our own countries and beyond them have very, very different views about fundamental issues. And if we take ours as kind of fixed and unchallengeable, how are we going to be able to relate um, appropriately with an appropriate kind of um, tolerance and respect uh, for other people? Writ Large is produced by Galen Beebe, Jack Pombriant, and me, Zachary Davis. We get help from Ferrandu, and our intern is Liza French. Our theme song is by Ian Koss. Our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. Join our discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what other listeners are saying. You can also find us on Twitter at WritLargePod and on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts and links to the books we discussed. Thanks for listening. See you next time.